0: Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43. We're in some very rich chapters now. Now let me set out sort of the, the, the broad context of what we're talking about. Isaiah is writing prophetically to a period of time some 200 years beyond his day. In his day, the great threat to the land of Israel was the Assyrian army. But actually, the Assyrian army would not conquer Judah. They would survive that. And there's a lot about that in the earlier chapters of the book of Isaiah. But another ancient superpower would come and successfully conquer Judah, and that would be Babylon. And the Babylonians would come and take virtually everybody in the whole nation of Judah captive back to the land of Babylon, and they would be exiled from their own country for 70 years. But now Isaiah looks forward prophetically to the time when the captives will be released and the people will be allowed to return back to Israel. Isaiah chapter 43. Again, that's the broadest context that we're talking about, but let's pick out different aspects of it. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Very important principles laid out in just a few words in verse 1. First of all, the Lord speaks to His people as their Creator. Did you notice that? But now, thus says the Lord, Who created you, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel. We need to understand that God has special and a unique claim upon us because he is our creator. When men forget that God is their creator, they fail in the most basic obligation that they have to God. If he created you, he has a claim upon you. He has a measure of ownership over you just because he created you. And hasn't this been one of the great victories of the world that we live in, the world set against God, to put out of the minds of people that there's a creating God in heaven that they need to answer to. But This is the truth of it. Now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. And then what does he say? Fear not. Am I to say that's a command, isn't it? It's, It's a command. Don't be afraid. Fear not. But it's a command accompanied by promises. Fear not. For I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. By all outward circumstances, the people of Judah had reason to be afraid of Babylon's army. They had reason to be afraid of the exile. But God points them past the present circumstances to this command and to this promise. Don't be afraid, I'm with you, I've redeemed you. Isn't that precious there in verse 1? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And isn't this beautiful? Do you know what a redeemer is? Well, you know what it is to redeem a coupon, right? You use a coupon to buy something. Redemption has the idea of purchasing something and making it your own. When God says he's our redeemer, the idea is that we're slaves, or maybe that we're in debtor's prison and God comes along and he says, I want to redeem that person. I will buy them out. And it's so marvelous because just in this very first verse of chapter 43 of Isaiah, we have a twin obligation that we have towards God. He owns us because he's our creator, right? Well, what's more than that? He owns us because he redeemed us. I heard one of those hokey preacher kind of stories that, Probably never true, but it illustrates a point beautifully. About a little boy who builds a sailboat. And he builds it real carefully, you know, in the little boy kind of way. It doesn't look like much, but he's awfully proud of it. And then one day he takes it out to the lake and he puts it in the water. And then what do you know? You know, it sails away and he thinks he'll never see it again. Well, a couple weeks later, he's walking along the beach and, and, and he sees an old peddler out there with a table out there with driftwood and things he picked up on the beach. And lo and behold, there's his boat. And he says, well, that's my boat. I, and he goes, kid, look, I picked it up on the beach. If you want it, you've got to buy it from me. So the kid goes in the piggy bank and gets out all the money he can and goes takes the man and he buys the boat and he takes it home. And when he looks at the boat, he, he says to the boat on the way, he goes, now you're twice mine. First I made you, then I bought you. Well, can't the Lord say that to us? First he made us, then he bought us. We have a dual obligation to God. That should overwhelm us tonight. That both he's our creator and our redeemer. And if there's even more, look at it there in verse 1. I've called you by your name. You are mine. That should be comforting to us, shouldn't it? Now, sometimes, you know, you'll see it when sort of, goofy, macho guys talk together, you know, you're mine, buddy, you know, they'll trash talk on the basketball court or whatever, you know, I own you, mister, and that has the idea of an oppressive sense, right, but when God says, you are mine, there should be something in that that cheers the heart of the believer, I belong to him, he wants me, he wants to own me. And knowing that we belong to the Lord is a wonderful answer to what? To fear. He says, fear not, you're mine. We can know that he holds us, protects us, guards us, and cares for us. We can know that he would not have created and redeemed and called us unless he intended to finish his work in us. How can we be afraid when we know that this God is for us, looking out for our circumstances? It says here in verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. And look at verse 2. It's great. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. We can fear not, not only because we know we belong to the Lord, right? That's the first verse. But we can fear not because we know that the Lord is with us. What's he say there? Look at it, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Deep waters, potential obstacles, don't worry, I'm with you, God says. And you got to walk through the fire? Look at it there, verse 2. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. I'll be with you. I'll be there. When God is with us, he's for us, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Israel had and would have their trials, and we have ours also, don't we? Friends, trials are inevitable, absolutely inevitable. Every one of you has an appointment to trial and affliction at some time in your life. Just get over it. I mean, look at it here in verse 2. It doesn't say, if you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. It says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And it certainly doesn't say, when you walk on a luxurious padded carpet, I'll be with you. Well, who needs the Lord then, right? No, it says, when you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. That's when God's presence is even more precious, it is even more beautiful to us. Then again, it also tells us that the trials are varied. Sometimes we face waters, sometimes we face rivers, sometimes fire, floods overwhelm us, fires consume us. It doesn't matter, the Lord is with us there. And just as he sustained the three Jewish young men in the, uh, high, in the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, he'll sustain us through the fire, won't he? Matter of fact, this whole passage is full of images from Exodus passing through the water. That's conjuring up the image of going through the Red Sea. Isn't it beautiful? He proclaims here that Israel's is indestructible. You pass through the waters, you won't drown. Go through the fire, you won't be harmed. You understand that? That Israel and God's plan for Israel is absolutely indestructible. Isn't it amazing when you think about genocide and, and ethnic cleansing and all that? Over the centuries, has there ever been a people group that has experienced more attempted genocides than the Jewish people? Not one. And you know what? They're still around, aren't they? And it wouldn't matter. Right now, uh, the nation of Israel has one of the most impressive military forces that you'll find. Oh, man, their fighter jets and technology and all that, in their army. Just, uh, they're, they're remarkable. But you know what? It wouldn't matter if they completely demilitarized. God would protect them. God would. He's not going to allow them to push. Water, fire, doesn't matter. But God helping us, we also can walk through the fire. And isn't it beautiful that I love how it says that in verse 2, you shall walk through the fire. I'm not talking about, you know, coal walking that you'll do at some, you know, a hotshot business seminar or something like that. I'm talking about walking through the fire. You don't have to panic. You don't have to fear. You don't have to run through the fire as if you didn't trust God. God can so strengthen us in our trials that we can walk through the fire. When you walk, you're not in a hurry. You're not concerned, you're not alarmed, you're not burned. you're not anxious. That's when you walk. God wants you to be able to walk in the fire. Many of us, we were writing this, and he said, I run like crazy through the fire and I will not be burned. No, you're not trusting the Lord. Walk through the fire. What did David say? Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not, you know, I run screaming as loud as I can through the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. Excuse me. Oh, you see the point? We can walk through the fire. You shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Why? Look at it there. Verse 4, since you were precious in my sight. God here describes his motivation for the work of redemption. What's his motive? He loves us. You're precious in my sight. And it's like John 3.16 in the Old Testament? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Verse 4, since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, yes, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. God's presence and blessing with Israel would also be demonstrated by unleashing the shackles of their exile. They could have hope for the future because they knew they were called by the name of the Lord. They knew they were created for his glory. Isn't it beautiful there how it says in verse 7, everyone who is called by name whom I have created for my glory. We talked about it in verse 1 that God created us, right? Why? Why? Why did God create us? The answer is there in verse 7, right? For his glory. God has created us for a purpose. That's one of the biggest rip-offs people have by believing in evolution or that there's no creating God in heaven. Because if there's no creator, then there's no purpose. But if there's a creator, then he created us not on a whim, not because he was just flipping coins in heaven, not cuz God was just bored. God created us for a purpose. God did it, creating us for his glory. You know what that means? It means that when we are glorifying God, we are fulfilling the purpose God created us for. Isn't that great? Now, you know, when when you think about something that's been created, uh, say like an automobile, That was created by somebody, right? Actually, by many people. But you could say somebody just created that automobile. Well, as long as you use that automobile for its purpose, the car is going to be happy and you're going to be happy, right? But you start using that car outside of its purpose. Like you say, you know, I want to go fishing. And I need somebody to get me out in the middle of the lake. So I'm going to take the car out in the middle of the lake. You're not really using the car within its intended purpose, are you? And you're going to be sad, the car's going to be sad, and it's not going to fulfill its purpose. You know, how many people live their lives so far outside of the purpose for which God created them? You don't even know how great your life can be, until you would start living it for the glory of God. Then you're fulfilling your purpose. You're in the slot God wants you. That's why he made you. Look at it there in verse 7. You can underline it. Whom I have created for my glory. When we're glorifying God, we're fulfilling the purpose we are created for, and that's when you're going to be the most happy and fulfilled. Verse 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes. And the deaf who have ears, let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things or let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. Now through these chapters, the the, the 40s in, in Isaiah 40, 41, 42, God's always challenging the idol worshippers. He's always sort of getting up in their face and saying, now prove your point to me. You're worshiping idols. You've rejected me. You're worshiping these false gods. Justify yourself. And isn't that what the Lord is doing right here? He says, who among them can declare this and show us former things? Bring out your witnesses. Come on, blind, deaf nations. Come out and prove me wrong, God says. Prove that you're right in rejecting me. You've chosen to worship and honor other gods. So come before me right now and justify yourself. And God says, now you bring plenty of witnesses with you, right? Go ahead, you bring plenty of witnesses. Let's have a trial. Nobody comes forth, can they? There's nobody who can come forth. None. False gods are nothing. They have no record to speak of. You can't bring forth a witness to say they've done good or bad because they're nothing. They're zero. Look at what God says in verse 13. You are my witnesses, says the Lord and my servant whom i have chosen that you may understand that you may know and believe me and understand that i am he before me there was no god formed nor shall there be after me i even i am the lord and beside me there is no savior i have declared and saved i have proclaimed then there was no foreign god among you therefore you are my witnesses says the lord that i am god Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Isn't that great? Now, the idols have nobody to come forth and testify on their behalf. But God looks at his people and he says, you're my witnesses. You can tell other people about the great things that I've done. If only Israel would remember the great things God had done among them, they would see the wonderful work of God as a witness to the truth that he is the only God. The idol worshippers had nothing to say as witnesses, but God's people did. He says, you're not only my witnesses, look at it there in verse 10, and my servant that I have chosen that you may know and believe me. Now, a witness is kind of a passive observer, right? You don't have to do much to witness something, right? You just sit back and watch. But that's not all God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to be only passive observers. Look at verse 10. And my servant whom I have chosen. God wants us to be chosen servants of his. Not to sit around and glory in our chosenness, but to serve the Lord and to know the Lord and to believe him in every way. Then he proclaims how different he is than all the other gods. Did you see it there? Verse 10, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. And, and now you think about this in, in terms of the idols that come forth. You know, the, the, think of the idol factory, right? On the bottom of each idol, there it is, the date of manufacture, right? And so you have some idols that were made, you know, a couple years ago, and then you got the ones fresh off the assembly line. You now God looks at all that and he laughs and he goes, there is no God formed after me. That's it. There is no more God. You can have your assembly line, you can have your idols, you can be inventing new gods all the time. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what the latest cutting edge thing, what the what the new fad is, what all it doesn't matter. That's just there's no God formed after me. In certain clear words, God says not only that he is the most high God, but that there are no other gods beside him. There are no junior gods out there. There are no second-tier or second-level gods. There was no God formed before the Lord, and there will be no God formed after him. Now, this is very important for us to grab a hold of. Do you know why? Because it's a remarkable evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. Do the scriptures tell us that Jesus is God? Absolutely positively. I mean, even the Jehovah's Witness translation of John one, This is how they translate it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Oh, it hurts me to say that, because it's such a bogus translation. But even if you take that, even if you were just a day, even if it were a correct translation, it clearly establishes that Jesus is, at the very least, a God, right? Now, The Bible says plainly right here in Isaiah chapter 43 that there are no second level gods, right? There's only one God. Now, you say, well, no, wait a minute. Satan is called the God of this age. That's right. He's a false God. Are you going to say Jesus is a false God? And you say, well, no, uh, uh, Psalm 82 says that the, the judges of Israel were like gods. That's right. They were symbolic gods, right? A judge is like a God in that he holds the fate of men in his hands. And these were proud, arrogant judges that God was rebuking. You're going to say Jesus is just a metaphorical God, a figurative God? No, can't say that. Well, if Jesus is a true God, then there's only one true God. And he has to be the true God. There are no junior level gods out there. Now, you know what I think is fascinating about this? Is that the Jehovah's Witnesses take their theme verse, their title from this very passage where it says in verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. That's where Judge, uh, excuse me, not uh, Judge Rutherford, uh, Charles Taze Russell and Judge Rutherford, these two early leaders of the Watchtower Movement, took the name Jehovah's Witnesses. We're Jehovah's Witnesses. And they didn't read the passage because it proclaims clearly that Jesus Christ is God. There are no true gods apart from the Lord Yahweh, who is one God in three persons it's ironic that the Jehovah's Witnesses take their title from this very passage, which proves their doctrines wrong. But not only that, God says, look, there's not only no other God, there's no other Savior but me. He says, verse 12, I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed. There's no foreign God among us who does any good. He's our help and our support. And so of all these things, look at the end of verse 12, therefore you are my witnesses, If Israel would remember that only the Lord has ever rescued them, that only the Lord is God, they wouldn't be so quick to turn to other gods and away from the Lord. Yes, God's credentials go very far. Nobody can deliver out of his hand. No, when God does something, look at it there at the end of verse 13, I work and who will reverse it? Nobody can go beyond the Lord. Now with all of this, you'd say, oh man, this is is incredible, this is marvelous, marvelous. What good does it do for me? I'll tell you the good that it does for us. It does the good of knowing that God will help us. God will redeem us. And he would for Israel. Look at it there in verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they're extinguished, they're to be quenched like a wick. You get the picture here? God says, I'm going to send to Babylon, and what's he going to do? He's going to bring those captives, bring those exiles back. Now, it may be a little confusing, especially when you think that is writing 200 years before this happened. But he anticipates both the captivity of Israel and the return from exile. And he says, God's going to send from Babylon and bring you back. And God's going to do it despite all kinds of obstacles. Is there a problem with a way in the sea? Look at verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. Huh. A path through the water, no problem for the Lord. Now when did the Lord do that before? Remember when the people of Israel needed to escape a nation, an oppressive nation, Egypt? And there they are at the Red Sea, and the Lord parts the waters, and there the Lord made a way through the sea. God says, no, no problem. I've done it before, God says. Matter of fact, this whole section is rich with images. Look at it there in verse 17. Who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. Doesn't that remind you of the the whole incident at the Red Sea where the Egyptian army was following after Israel and they ended up drowned in the Red Sea when God closed the waters back upon them. God overwhelmed the Egyptian armies. So therefore, the people of Israel could have confidence that he would do the same to the Babylonian armies. Every great work of God in the past is a promise of his future work for us. It teaches us that we can always justify trusting God right now by remembering the things that he's done for us. Friends, what beautiful comfort there is just in the titles of the Lord. In these few verses, he says, I'm the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God says, look at me. I can save you. I can redeem you. I think it's fascinating, the transition here to verse 18. Look at it. It says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Now, you know what I think is incredible here? What a, what a marvelous balance the Lord gives for us in our lives. In verses 14 through 17, he encourages Israel by bringing forth images of past deliverance, right? Right? I did it before, I can do it again. Remember that, God's saying. And then what does he say in verse 18? He says, don't remember the former things. Wait a minute, Lord, you were just reminding us. And God says, yeah, now don't remember the former things. God now wants to put their eyes on the new work that he will do, and so it begins with a reminder not to remember the former things. If they're stuck in the failure and the sin and the discouragement of the past, they'll never go forward into the new thing that God has for them. I think it's a fascinating, instructive switch between the two. Remember, and then don't remember. You no, know, that's how God wants you to deal with your past. Remember, and then don't remember. Remember the great works of God in the past. Isn't that what we're always forgetting? How great God is and how many times He's come through for us. I mean, shouldn't those things be at the forefront of our mind? Just, just boom, exploding into our mind. Oh, the great things. Oh, I remember when the Lord did this, and I remember when the Lord did this. And sometimes when somebody comes up to you and says, well, tell me something great that the Lord's done in your life the last year. And you're like, uh, uh, uh. (laughs) what? why is it that we get a brain cramp right there? You know, there's an enemy of your soul who wants you to forget every good thing that the Lord's ever done for you because he knows that if your mind is filled with remembrance of the great works of God in the past on your behalf, you're going to be filled with so much faith and confidence in the Lord, you're going to be unstoppable. So remember those things. Well, then what am I supposed to forget? Forget about the past with all its discouragement and defeat and move on to what God has for you in the future. Isn't it funny how we're so good at remembering what God wants us to forget and forgetting what God wants us to remember? Remember? We've got to turn around exactly. Oh, our minds are filled with the defeats of the past and how hard it was and how much they hurt me and how much, oh, the problem it was and, oh, they've been so bad to me and, oh, it was so much hurt and so much pain and, oh, what a struggle. God looking at you tonight and say, forget it. Just let it go. What good is it doing you? Honestly, is it doing you any good tonight for you to cling on to that? No. Why not fill your mind with remembrance of the great and mighty works of God in the past in your life? I tell you, I I speak from someone who doesn't keep a journal myself, but this is probably one of the best things you can do in a journal. Keep a journal of God's great works on your behalf and go back and read it a lot. Just be scrupulous that you don't fill it full of the things that you should forget. Make a journal full of the things you should remember and fill your mind with it. Why? Why? Look at it there in verse 19. Because behold, I will do a new thing. Staying stuck in the past can keep us from the new thing God wants to do. If Israel stayed stuck in the discouragement and the seduction of Babylon, they would never look for the new thing of release from exile. Now friends, again, there's a balance here, right? Because we can make an idol out of the new. I think Americans are very much into that. Everything has to be new. New and improved. New and improved. Wow, it's new. Oh, I want it. New. You've got the new thing. Wow. We're just like the people of Athens described in Acts chapter 17 who spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. That's how we are today. And we can be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. But friends, you know, you can also err on the other side of the balance, can't you? You can work against the new thing that God wants to do. And so God says to us, look at it there in verse 19. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? God asks the same question today. Are you going to stay in step with my spirit when he leads you into something new? Shall you not know it? Because God is so great. Look at what he's going to do. Verse 19. I'll even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Oh, can you imagine the exiles in Babylon saying, oh, how are we ever going to make it all the way back from Babylon to, to, uh, to Israel? I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles and, and we don't have cars or anything. We don't even have horses or chariots. It's all on foot and there's no roads. And how are we going to... God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to make a road in the wilderness for you. You could see him worrying and straining and sweating and getting all worked up and all filled with fear over something that says, don't worry about it. I'll do it. I've got plans and research you don't even know about. Leave those problems to me. Many times when God makes us a promise, we worry about the details. We worry about the obstacles in the way. Don't worry about it, God will fulfill the promise. He'll make a road in the wilderness. Why? Look at the end result there in verse 21. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Aren't we back to fulfilling the purpose we were created for, for his glory? When we declare our praise for God, we're giving him glory, and we're fulfilling one of the purpose we were created for. Oh, isn't this beautiful? Oh, yes, Lord, now we're praising you. We've seen your great works. We've seen you make this beautiful road for us, Lord. Yes, God, yes. Unfortunately, we don't always respond that way, do we? Isn't it scary how hard-hearted we can be towards the Lord sometimes? And that's reflected in verse 22. "'But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, and you've been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices.' I have not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You've brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. You've not called upon me, O Jacob. Remember, we see in verse 22, you've been weary of me. I don't know if there's anybody here tonight honest enough to admit it. But sometimes we feel weary of God, don't we? Weary of serving the Lord. Oh, Lord, not again. We regard serving Him and obeying Him as a weary thing. We feel like it's such a burden to serve the Lord. We think we're so bad off following His ways, and we feel so oppressed and so afflicted. Sometimes people say, I just need to take a break. And they essentially mean, I need to take a break from the Lord. You know, when we feel like this, it is certain evidence that we're not in step with Jesus and the true nature of Jesus. Never. This is what Jesus said. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not weary. Now, I'm not trying to say that we don't get tired along the way, that we don't need refreshment, of course, that's not... But you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about fatigue. I'm talking about being weary of the Lord. That's a dangerous place, my friend. If following God always seems like some great, weary burden to you, then you really aren't following him. I don't know what you're following. Maybe you're following your own religion. Maybe you're following your own customs, your own thing. But if you're really following Jesus, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, Look what else they were guilty of. Verse 23, you've not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings. You know what it was, babe? I'll lay it online. They were chintzy. You know. Come on, God, sheep. You know, I I got a flock of, of 50 sheep. If I give a couple to the Lord, you know, that cuts into my bottom line. They were stingy. They, they wouldn't give unto the Lord. And so here they were, you know, they got their hands in their pockets. They won't give unto the Lord. They regard serving the Lord as some big weariness. Oh, I need a break. I need a break. And then look what the Lord says. This is classic at the end of verse 24. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I mean, Isaiah is speaking to God's people who felt burnt out, burdened, and weary on the Lord. God replies to them, you feel burdened. You feel weary. Try being me, the Lord says. You've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. I can see why the Lord would be weary of us. But us weary of Him, I can't figure that one out. God says, you've burdened me, you've wearied me. Look at the Lord's love here in verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I'll not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case, that you may be acquitted. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. What's God going to do with such a hard-hearted people? He'll forgive them at the earliest opportunity. He'll forget their sins. Despite all the sin and disregard for God, he still loves his people. He longs for their humble return. And then he says, look at it there in verse 25, I'll not remember your sins. How can God forget? Well, he chooses not to remember. Go to God and say, Lord, remember that sin I confessed to you Month ago and laid out before your throne? I don't remember any sin. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've forgotten that one. That's under the blood of my son. Like it never happened. God says, Come on, come before me. You want to justify yourself? Then do it. Did you see it there in verse 26? Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. But here's the problem. Look at it there in verse 24. Your first father sinned. Do you know who that is? Adam. That's what makes us sinners. You're a child of Adam, and his sin has infected the whole human race, including yourself. You're a sinner through and through from birth. Stop trying to justify yourself and humbly look to me for salvation. And even your mediators, verse 27, has transgressed against me. No, we need a perfect mediator, the mediator of Jesus Christ. that's what it points to. And apart from that, all Jacob will be given over to, look at that verse 28, is a curse. But it gets better here in verse 44. He says, yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb and who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. Isn't that beautiful? God says, I know your heart's hard, but when you turn to me, I'll pour out my spirit upon you. Isn't that beautiful? Isaiah 43 ended with a warning of judgment, but it doesn't mean that God takes back his promise of hope and restoration. Israel can still know the goodness of the Lord if they'll only turn back to them. He to turn back to the Lord. So he says, fear not, I'll pour water on him. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants. God will not simply give them his spirit. Look what it says there. Verse 3, I will pour out my spirit on them. It's as if water would be poured upon them. Think about the picture of pouring, right? That's freedom. You know, when you're pouring something, you can't control it, can you? I mean, it's just falling, right? It's poured out upon them. Pouring has a sense of a flow of the spirit. It has a sense of an abundance of the spirit. It's an evident giving of the Spirit. Everybody can see when you're pouring something, you're pouring water, people can see it. God wants to pour out His Spirit upon His people. Maybe you feel, oh, I'm getting a few drops here and there. But God wants to pour. He wants to pour. Maybe you're bone dry. God wants to pour. If you know you want the pouring, then say, God, keep on pouring. You know how it is. There you are. And Somebody's pouring you a cup of coffee or a glass of water and they get up to a certain place and say, when? And say, I don't know why we say that. When? When what? I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that what a lot of us do to the Lord? You know, he wants to pour out his spirit upon us and he gives us a little and we go, when? No. Stop saying when. Let the Lord do it. Let him pour out his spirit upon you. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I believe that. At this present moment, God's people ought to cry to him day and night that there may be a fresh baptism into the Holy Ghost. There are many things that are desirable for the church of Christ, but one thing is absolutely needful and this is the one thing, the power of the Holy Ghost in the midst of his people. So pour it out upon us. Now, who's going to receive the gift? Look at it there, verse 3, I will pour water on him who is thirsty got to be thirsty for it, right? Be thirsty for it. They want it. God's looking for dry ground to pour out his floods upon. And blessings, he says, on your offspring. He wants it to extend to your children. And then look at it here in verse 4. They'll spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. He wants that spirit and that pouring out to bring life. The life springs up and grows where the Spirit of God is poured out. And then look at how they'll identify themselves. Verse 5. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. They'll say, hey, I belong to the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful effect of the poured out spirit in our life? We're not afraid to be identified with the Lord. Listen, if there's anybody here and you're embarrassed to be called a Christian, if you're embarrassed to be called a follower of Jesus Christ, You know, if you get all flustered and and flooded, and, oh, you know, well, I don't know if I want to say that I'm a Christian, you need an outpouring of the Spirit of God in your life. Jesus said that the outpouring of the Spirit of life would make us witnesses of Him. No longer would be afraid to be identified with the Lord. I'm not talking about being some obnoxious guy where you shout shouting people's face like a drill sergeant, I'm a Christian, you better be one too. No, I'm just talking about just the confidence in who you are. You say, well, you know, people are making fun of Christians around at your workplace. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, what's wrong with saying that? Isn't that what you should say? Well, sure it is. But it's hard, isn't it? We need the Spirit of God. We need that outpouring. Now, look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. And his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God, and who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to me. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You alone, excuse me, you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one." how God's proving that he is alone, God. No other idol, no other thing is worthy of our trust, of our praise, of our attention. There's no other God. Now, knowing this isn't just good for a theological quiz game. You know, here here it is, you know. uh, How many gods are there? You know, you're doing Jeopardy and hits that buzzer or whatever. No, it's not just good for that. It's not just an answer to a trivia game. It's so that, look, verse 8, Do not fear nor be afraid. When we know the greatness of our God, it's the answer to fear in our lives. That's what we need to cling to. Now, verse 9. I'm going to read an extended passage, verse 9 all the way to verse 20. This is one of the most beautifully and sarcastically written passages in the scriptures. Now, God has just been saying how he alone is God, right? How he alone is the Lord. I mean, he alone is the one who can tell the future and be the rock and the Savior and the first and the last. And then now God says, now, let's take a look at the idols. Let's take a look at the false gods. Now, when I read this passage, I don't want you to think of just merely statues. Think of every false god that men and women put their trust in and how ridiculous they are. You, know, you can think of the false god of success. That's a false god. Isn't, isn't that an idol people serve today? The god of romance. The god of, uh, of money. The god of power. All those things. Check this out. Verse 9. Those who make a graven image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or cast a grave image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, and they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he's hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water, and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule, he marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with the plane. He marks it out with the compass. He makes it like the figure of a man that it may remain in the house. He hews down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. And he will take some of it and warm himself. Yet he kindles it and bakes bread. And indeed he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships, prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand. For he shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I've also baked bread on its coals. I've roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? First, the blacksmith, right? It's hard work making a good idol, isn't it? then he brings out and he goes, you know, they only make them for profit. If it's no good, they'll melt it down and make it again. There you are, melting down a god. But I need to make it again, you know, because I got to say, look, I'm a businessman here, but it's hard work. And even the guy who's making it is getting worn out. What does that say about the item itself? Then there's the craftsman, right? He blocks it out very carefully. He makes it. But, you know, where does he get the wood to make it? Well, he goes down to the forest and he chops down a tree. And he says, well, with this part of the tree, I'm going to make a stool. And uh, the rest of it I'll just use for kindling and, you know, to to fuel my fire. But this part of it, this would make a good god. And so he carves a god out of it. And he bows down and worships it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. It's laughable, isn't it? Any more laughable than the false gods people live for today? No. Look at the end of it all. It's in verse 20. This is the satisfaction you find from serving a false God. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul. That's not like a satisfying meal to feed on ashes. You can kind of get that feeling in your mouth, right? It's disgusting, isn't it? But that's what worshiping a false god is like. That's what living for anyone or anything except the Lord our God is like. It's like feeding on ashes, completely unsatisfying. We can only satisfy our soul in God. And then he says, look at the last line, Nor can he say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? I mean, he's looking at it and he's holding the idol in his right hand. He's looking at it, but he's holding it. But you know what? It's holding him. He's in bondage to this lie. And he can't be let go of it because he won't forsake it. He's chosen it. Now, instead of this, look at verse 21. This is how we should have our attitude. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. You know, as we think of the foolishness of making and worshiping idols, it should inspire greater trust and confidence in God. I want you to think about it tonight. Sometimes it's hard to serve the Lord, right? Sometimes it's a challenge. Sometimes it's difficult. But where else are you going to go? What else are you going to turn to? Anybody here got a better alternative? Oh, I'll quit this and we'll go join the Elks Club. What, is that a better alternative for you? Well, we'll do this, and, and we'll get together and play bingo. Well, I, is there something better? You need to think about the alternatives. Remember what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus looked at the disciples after a bunch of them left and said, Are you guys going to go also? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no place other for us to go, Lord. It's not always easy following you. It's not a big weariness, especially not when you see whatever else is out there. No, the the foolishness of the alternative is reason enough, but then God gives his servants even more reasons to serve him. Look at there, I formed you, you're my servant. You'll not be forgotten by me. I blotted out your transgressions. I've redeemed you. Oh, any one of these would be reason enough, but combined they're overwhelming. So in verse 23, the call goes out, sing, O heavens, for the Lord's done it. The Lord's redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in it. And now in verse 24 to the end of the chapter, God delivers the coup de grace to the idols. You know, the Lord's been challenging the idols all along, right? Prove me something. Come on, show me something. Speak up. Justify yourself. You, Mr. Idol maker. You, the idol yourself. You, the idol worshiper. Justify yourself. Let's go anything else worth living for, anything else giving your, anything else worth giving your life for than me, then show me, justify it. Nothing comes forth. God says, good, now let me show you why I can prove that I'm a great God that you should serve. You know what the Lord's going to do in verses 24 through 28 and then on into chapter 45? God says, I'm going to tell you about a man who's going to live 200 years past the time I'm speaking about right now. And I'm going to name him by name. And I'm going to tell you the man who's going to deliver Israel from their captivity in Babylon. I'm going to tell him by name, 200 years before he's ever born. Here we go, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers, who drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servants and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places, who says of the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Man, that's a tall order, God. Don't you know Israel, it's desolate, Jerusalem's a ruin, the temple's a wreck. And here's God talking all this big talk about how he's going to fix it all. Well, God, prove it. Show us that you're up to the task. God says, I'm glad you asked. Verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, you are my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. God proves that he is who he claims to be by announcing the name of a deliverer for Israel's Babylonian exiles more than 200 years before that guy came forth, and he names him by name. Now, this king has been alluded to before in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 2, but now, amazingly, he mentions him by name, so that everybody would know that the Lord knows what he's talking about that God can see and plan and ordain the future. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard, and maybe some of you blessedly haven't heard, but many so-called modern scholars believe that Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah. And they believe that there's two Isaiahs. And they, they say, well, the first half of the book was written by a guy named Isaiah in Isaiah's time, but the second half of the book, that was written much later. Matter of fact, they say, it had to be written some two or three hundred years after Isaiah's time, because it mentions Cyrus by name. And the Lord says, no. You see, I'm God. God says, I can do that. I can see the future. I can name names ahead of time. I can tell things that are going to happen hundreds of years before they happen. I'm God. Now listen, you can choose to disbelieve what it says, but you can't change what it says don't change it. It says what it says. And by the way, Josephus, in his antiquities, his history of the Jewish people, writes that when Cyrus read this passage, because people came and brought it to him, probably Daniel the prophet, he was blown away and he was seized by a holy desire to fulfill what was written by him. Now, friends, if this was written after the time of Cyrus, how could have Daniel brought it to Cyrus? We don't know exactly that it was Daniel. I'm supposing that. He would have been alive at the time. How would he have brought it to them? See, my friends, this is a remarkable prophecy. And God says, See, Cyrus is here. He's my shepherd. Now, kings in that day were often called shepherds, and he's called a shepherd because he's helpful to God's people, and he's a special instrument in God's hand. And you want to know how specific the prophecy is? Look at verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Do you know how Cyrus conquered the city of Babylon? By drying up the Euphrates River and walking in under the walls of the city on the dry river bank. God knew it 200 years before it happened. Is something else? Look at it here in verse 28. It says, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. If you want to get very exact on the matter... Ezra records that during the life of Cyrus, only the foundation of the temple was completed. I mean, he commissioned the entire work to be done, but only the foundation was finished during his lifetime. The rest of the temple was finished after Cyrus passed away. So that's why Isaiah makes specific mention of the foundation being laid. This is how God knows the future. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week when we get together, because chapter 45 continues talking about Cyrus. But shouldn't this leave you just pumped up with confidence in the Lord? I mean, what are you facing that's greater than what other people are facing? God's come through for people in worse circumstances than you're in, right? You know that. Well, what? Why won't he come through for you? The only thing I think that can hinder it is your unbelief. Your lack of willingness to trust in the Lord see, these two chapters have shown us so powerfully the greatness of God and his greatness over anything else, any rival, any competitor. We can put our 100% unreserved trust in him. So let's do that right now in prayer. Father, we just conclude tonight by praying before you and asking you, God, that you'd cement these things in our heart, that you'd help us, Lord, to have a, a greater trust in you, as our creator, as our redeemer, as the great God, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, that you'd help us to know, Lord, all your great works, all your majesty. We love you and praise you, God, and look for you to continue your work in our lives without reservation, Lord, keeping it going more and more day by day. Thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for your greatness. Thank you for for knowing the beginning from the end. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.